Today's first reading is from Acts 2. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to us. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. The second reading comes from the letter of First Peter, the first chapter, verses 17 to 23. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. If you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways from inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him, you have come to trust in God, raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now that you have purified your souls by obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Friends, this is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. The middle school invited a Buddhist monk to spend some time with them and show the students the process of creating a, a sand mandala. Have you ever seen those before from that tradition? Um, if, if those who will listen to this later at home, if you just Google sand mandala, something will come up that will be worth seeing. Uh, I'll show some of you some pictures here. You can see from where you're sitting. They're quite beautiful. It's all made with tiny grains of sand. The, the purpose is to promote uh, purification and healing. And a couple other images here that you can see. They're quite vibrant in color. The design is incredibly intricate. You can imagine 
the kind of detail work it takes to create them. Here you see some monks working with some fine tools. Occasionally you'll see them working with surgical maths, masks because their very breath could disturb them. This is another picture of a tool being used to create that. If, if you know anything about that, you know what happens at the end, right? What they do to preserve them for all time. Uh, nothing is the answer. This is what happens not long after they finish them. And they just brush them away. I think in the, in the school I mentioned, what the monk did was, it was, took, um, was able to take it down to the river and he just blew it into the wind. Now that flies in the face of so much of what we aspire to in our, in our culture. Um, making something lasting, uh, building monuments to ourselves or to ourselves through the things that we care about. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I was obsessed with becoming famous. Uh, the first service laughed at that. You clearly see that I've made it. <laughs> you know I have arrived. Uh, but there was something wrapped up in uh, permanence there, in immortality. But of course, one of the lessons of the San Mandala and one of the key teachings in the Buddhist tradition is impermanence. And we know all too well that things can just be blown away in an instant, that nothing is promised. This week, we received an email from the Presbytery about one of our dear colleagues, Sharon Latour, serving out at at Stinson in Bolinas. And uh, she had been otherwise healthy, but then all of a sudden came down with some throat symptoms and went, uh, ended up in the ER. And very quickly, they figured out that it was cancer. And and a day or two later, we got another email. She was going home from the hospital to be put on hospice. It was an aggressive form of cancer. And in fact, Stanford said they'd never seen it progress this fast before. So a family comes in to do what family does and loved ones do, to sit by the side of their loved one and make sure they know that they love them and to dab their head with a wet cloth and to take one of those swabs and dip it in the ice chips and wipe their lips until they're gone. And the very next morning, we got another email saying Sharon had died. All of that took place from the visit until her death in two weeks. It's just vast. What we've been given is so precious. It's been exactly two weeks since Easter, and it's a precious time in the church's calendar. It's this time when after Jesus has raised from the dead, and and his people are experiencing him in strange ways as still there, and he hasn't left yet for good, which he does in what we call the ascension, right? Leaving us with the Spirit, but ascending to another realm. It's a precious time in the church. Imagine what it was like to be those disciples. They put all their hope in this one. He was their teacher, but yet he was even more than that. And, and even though he alluded to what was coming, they didn't quite catch it because it was hard to make sense of what he was talking about. And then he was gone, taken from them, executed, 
He was gone. But then they get this gift, the gift that we seem never to get. He comes back. And he spends time with them. And Scripture describes in detail a couple of those appearances, but mentions that there were many more showing up to the people who loved him, maybe to strangers who never knew him, uh, often surprising people. I half imagine Jesus being a practical joker, and the people are kind of sitting around, having a meal, maybe even they're worshiping or they're praying, which sort of summons his presence. And then when he comes through a wall, hi, guys, Jesus! Stop doing that! (laughs) But of course, they don't want him to stop doing that. They never want him to stop doing that. They want him to stay forever. It's not the gift they would have wanted, but somehow it's enough. It's, It's Christ's way of saying to them, I'm still with you. And what we were about together, it, it still matters. And no matter what happens, you're still going to be okay. And somehow, that's enough. Do we know that? Do we know that, that Christ is with us? And do we know that the work we're about, which isn't all work, of course, that it matters? And do we know deep down, no matter how afraid we get, that it will be okay, whatever okay means? It's easy to forget that from time to time. I felt a little bit like a monk myself the week after Easter. I I literally moved out of my home into an apartment at the seminary so I could write morning to night on my dissertation. And I felt like I was building something, one piece of sand at a time, though I, I can't profess that my dissertation will be as beautiful as one of those mandalas. And I have to say, more than once, I thought, what is this all for? I'm going to finish this thing, God willing, and then, God willing, it'll be approved, and then it will sit on a shelf to gather dust for all time. Seven years in the making. For what? Do you ever feel that way? I mean, it doesn't have to be a research project. It could be anything in your life. It could be you're at home with your child, and and, uh, you start the day Uh, with a semi-clean house, and you feel as though you spend your entire day chasing them, picking up what they cast off, uh, trying to entertain them, cooking and cleaning in between all the chaos, and at the end of the day, they melt down, resent you, and the house looks worse than when you started. (laughs) You ever feel that way? Or you find some relationship and you you pour everything into it, it, and it feels so right. Until it doesn't anymore, and it's gone. Or maybe a job that, that, you, that you really think defines who you are until it doesn't. Or even worse, it still does, and it doesn't want you anymore, and you're gone. Ever feel that way? It's, it's hard to see when you're in the middle of the building uh, the beauty. Do you know how long Jesus' public ministry lasted Shorter than my time at Westminster so far. Now, those of you on personnel, please do not measure me by that standard. (laughs) But the Gospel of John records three Passover celebrations during his ministry. The other Gospels, only one. So Jesus' ministry was no longer than three years, or I guess no longer than four, technically, and could have been as short as one single solitary year. 
all the other time of his life, from the time he was 12, which is the last story we have in Scripture that we've accepted at least, until he's about 30, all that time, preparation, building, training, studying, questioning, finding himself, losing himself, that thankless work of becoming, of of becoming something beautiful to offer to the world, and then when it's time to offer it to the world, he presents it out for a short period of time, and then it's gone, and we're left with the wind, literally. And yet, who among us would question that his life mattered? That what he was was important? Not just his birth, which may have been miraculous, or his death and his resurrection, but his life, the way he lived, the building, the pieces themselves were beautiful as well. Who would question that? First Peter, this letter that you heard from earlier, speaks to it in very stark terms. Uh, The author is writing to a group of people who uh, needed encouragement. They would have been among the socially and politically marginalized because of the community they had chosen and what that community stood against. And so this was supposed to be a word uplifting to them. And it reads, You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Now, I wonder how many of you grew up in the language of the precious blood of Christ. And I wonder how you felt about that language. For some, it's uh, of great comfort and assurance. I um, had a colleague, a strong Baptist woman, very spiritual woman, who'd always talk about being washed in the blood. And for her, it gave her strength power. And so if that's a powerful image for you, I have no interest in taking it away. For others, it's a troubling image. It's troubling language. Whether you're new to the church, you've been in the church a long time, people wrestle with that one. I might be able to help there. You see, context is everything when it comes to some of these images. And you have to remember in Jesus' time, one of the ways you receive forgiveness is you went to the temple and had a priest sacrifice an animal on your behalf, and then you were forgiven, okay? That's the context. New Testament scholar Marcus Borg says, to affirm Jesus being the sacrifice for sin was to deny the temple's claim to have a monopoly on forgiveness. It was a statement against that structure. It subverted the sacrificial system by using the very metaphor of sacrifice. And so to understand Jesus in those terms was to stand in defiance to the powers of the day and to say, you don't get to say who's forgiven and who's not, and you don't get to say who has access to God and who doesn't. Remember, Jesus went around all the time saying, you are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. We sort of regard it as a sweet sentiment, but it was a radical statement at the time. It was a moment of intense personal healing for the person set free, and it was a profound and profoundly political statement because he was saying to the powers and his people who understood him on those terms were saying to the powers, no, 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 you don't get to control access to God and you surely don't get to charge admission." Jesus is always, always flipping the world on its head and who has the power in the world. 
Now, we get so obsessed with the blood of that passage for understandable reasons that we gloss over the other elements, but they're just as interesting. Because the teaching says, well, you weren't ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold. You were, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Silver and gold aren't perishable. It's an ironic teaching. Silver and gold last a lot longer than the opposition, which is blood. Blood can't survive at all outside the body, and even in the body it turns over, we know from modern medicine, pretty regularly. God is dealing with perishable things, but calling them imperishable. God's flipping things on their head yet again, like God always does. And, and, and God doesn't stop with blood. What's the other passage you heard earlier today? It's from Acts. And here, this is, happens after Jesus has ascended, and the people are wondering what to do, and the disciples come to Peter and say, Peter, what do we do next? And he says, what? Go out and baptize water. Not gold and silver, blood and water. These are the elements that usher in the kingdom, the realm, the way of being. That is God's way of being. Not flags, not swords, blood and water. It's remarkable. It's what Jesus is made out of. None of that other stuff that we think is powerful Remember what happens to him when he's on the cross and they pierce him to speed his death? You remember what comes out? Blood and water. This one that we so love, that we, uh, in this tradition, worship, that we follow, that we claim is the one, the clearest manifestation of the divine in flesh, was made with fragile parts. And it's in his fragility that he finds his power and his beauty and his strength. Because Jesus, in so many words, is a sand mandala. Crafted beautifully over time for the, for the sake of purification and healing. Healing of the sickness of his time and the corruption of his time. That's what the purification was for. And yet offers healing for the sickness of our time. And the pur purification of the corruption of our time. Two. And he was able to do it because he didn't spend his whole life trying to build a monument. He allowed it to be laid grain after grain after grain, knowing what would come. Scripture says he knew it all along how it was going to end, that it would all be blown away in an instant, and it didn't slow him down. In fact, it's in his very surrender to his perishability that he unleashes Eternity for all of us. Because actually, in the release of our hold on permanence, in the letting go, something else beautiful happens. The very wiping away can be beautiful too because it paves the way for reconstitution into something even yet more beautiful. We might call that resurrection. And in this sacred time between Easter and the Ascension, when Christ is said to be with us in a special way, we are invited into resurrection lives with him. To, like he did, appear anew, show up to people, show up and be present to what is before you, fully inhabiting it. 
to not getting too far ahead of ourselves into, into what's going to happen then and what if and what if that doesn't happen, but to stay exactly where we are in this moment, fully inhabiting it, trusting the divine presence is here too, knowing that that will be the best way to prepare for the next moment when it comes. To live in that resurrection time where we recognize the way others are appearing to us. Others who are also a reflection of the divine presence. Also a reflection of the resurrection. Oh sure, some of us have scars that are fresher than others. Wounds that may still be bleeding, but all somehow a reflection of the resurrection. To recognize and to dip into that reservoir that is available to us at all times to know that we are not alone and that what we are about matters and the baptismal waters never run dry and therefore we can do what needs to be done. We can stand up and face those things that need to be opposed and say no and stand with those things that need to be affirmed and say yes. And to spend our lives building just piece by piece just a grain here and there, but being able to simultaneously step back and see the beauty in the midst of the building, not waiting till the end to enjoy it. If Jesus' life mattered, then ours do too. And the way we build them matters, even if you can't see it. My dissertation will undoubtedly be on a shelf in a few months gathering dust, but I won't be, hopefully, And insofar as it helps craft me into something that somehow reflects something beautiful to the world, then it was all worth it. Every keystroke, every year, all of it was worth it. So long as we build our lives out of the things that Christ built his life out of, love, forgiveness, compassion for the suffering, solidarity with the poor, Integrity, presence, those things are priceless, unlike silver and gold. And yet they're free. And we'll know what's really valuable. We will all know it that one day when we sit in that unenviable seat and yet holiest of seats next to a loved one whose lifeblood is draining away, We'll know as we dip the swab and wipe their lips, refreshed by ice chips, frozen water, what's really important. In the death of Christ comes new life for all. And in our realization of our ending becomes our new beginning. Amen.